Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Delaware, to talk to State Representative Krista Griffith. We talk about her efforts to expand health coverage to undocumented kids, as well as pass data privacy and gun laws. More importantly, we spoke about how her son's leukemia changed the course of her life. I found Krista to be honest, caring, and a public servant in every sense of the word. Enjoy! Delaware State Representative Krista Griffith, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's great to be with you, and it's been a long time since we've seen each other, and I'm just really excited to be a part of this podcast that I've listened to for now two years, I believe, of you interviewing colleagues of ours in the New Deal. So I'm so excited and honored to to be part of this today. It's so nice to connect with you. We had a great time in Washington, D.C. a ways back, and I hope to see you at future New Deal Leader events. You are one of the most energetic legislative leaders we have. We have uh, so many different initiatives that we can talk about today, but I want to first sort of start about with your path into elected service. You spent a decade working in the attorney general's office with Bo Biden as one of your, as the attorney general. I want to talk a little bit about what made you decide to, to leave that form of public service and move into the elected office form. Well, that's a great question, Ryan. And like many of us, our paths take different twists and turns over the years to get us to where we are. And certainly the events of my life shaped my experiences and and decisions to run, some wonderful and some painful, as it turns out. But in terms of the wonderful, I was actually the proud granddaughter of an Irish immigrant who was educated. My grandmother, Molly O'Gara, was educated just through the eighth grade, came to the United States at age six, but then later became very successful and ran for office in the state of New Hampshire as a state senator in the 50s and won. And so I grew up hearing stories, not just of Ireland, but her days in the New Hampshire Senate, which she just had so many wonderful stories and stories of public service that really inspired me as a kid and and got me very interested in in politics. Now, we were on different sides of the aisle politically, which was always interesting around dinner tables uh, topics. Um, We had our, we sure had fiery debates. And as I said, she is Irish or was Irish. So, and I grew up with a, a mom and a dad who were very politically active in their interests and very staunch Democrats. And so 
I had this very wonderful experience growing up with a family that was very interested in politics, even if it was just debates at the dinner table. So I think, you know, you have to go back to your roots. And and certainly, I think if I didn't have that, I don't know that I would be doing what I am today, that that experience really gave me a deep interest in, in political life. So I had that in the background. I went to college to study journalism and political science, because frankly, I didn't know if I wanted to be a reporter or work in political life, either as a staffer or some other capacity, ultimately decided to go the journalist route, became a reporter for newspapers that were in the Chicago and Boston metropolitan areas. And I loved that life. And that was nothing better than being in a newsroom, grinding out stories, talking about issues, debating and working together to create, you know, that's its own public service, in my view, to really give news to people about what's going on in their community. And unfortunately, as we saw and have seen, newspapers are, you know, are a dying breed in a lot of ways and have dramatically changed over the years. So I knew I had to switch gears and think about what my future would hold in the newspaper industry should I just stay where I was. So what I decided to do was go to law school and continue to work full-time, So, which was not an easy task, especially if anybody out there listening has worked for a newspaper, you know, it's not a uh, high paying job, number one, and number two, nor is it a nine to five job. So I would get up at 630 in the morning, be at work at 730. We are an afternoon paper. So I was the deadline reporter and also crime and courts. So I would, you know, do all the breaking news in the morning, run to court and observe some cases or check files, run back file stories, and then run into Boston to go to law school at Suffolk Law. So I I did that for four years in the night school and I loved it. I loved every second of it. Like I know that sounds really odd because most people think it's a grind, but for me it was it was going to school after many years of not being in school was really fun and rewarding because it was again, it was something that I was choosing to do. But of course, during that time, I found out that I really actually wanted to practice law and not and not be a specialized investigative reporter that I thought I would be when I when I first started law school. I thought a JD would help me get hired at a bigger paper, or focus more on specific type of reporting that might keep my job in the industry for a number of years. But as it turns out, I decided I wanted to change career paths and. So I was in Boston, living in the city, loving life, and met my husband, and he and I decided we wanted to try a new state together, and we, he got a job here in Delaware first, and then I ended up getting a job after law school clerking for um, the president judge of the Superior Court. So that is how we landed in Delaware. And then I, I went to work at the Department of Justice, where just a few months after I joined the office... Bo Biden was elected attorney general, and I was really fortunate to work for him his entire eight years in office here in Delaware, learned a lot from him. He was a very inspiring leader, someone despite his, of course, you know, obviously with President Biden and the traditions he grew up in and the deep experiences he had in politics. When you worked with him just at the Department of Justice, he truly was an attorney general who cared deeply about the state of Delaware. And he didn't let that, you know, pedigree, so to speak, dictate who he was. You know, he was his own person and was very down to earth, very accessible and similar to his dad. I mean, that that's how the president is as well. But he truly cared about the office and was inspiring 
and how he really wanted to and strove to and did protect the vulnerable, the most vulnerable of our state, everywhere from children who were abused by a prominent pediatrician to senior citizens to the disabled. And, and so that was a really wonderful experience for me. I just, I loved my job there. I did a lot of different things. I did some civil work representing the kids department. So I worked with children who were in foster care. And then I was promoted to lead Bo Biden's senior protection initiative. So I enjoyed moving to a different direction of prosecuting cases. Most of them were involving financial crimes committed against seniors and then leading a multidisciplinary team of social workers, prosecutors, law enforcement to really get at some of the issues that were causing our older citizens to be victimized. Uh, So I enjoyed that work. And then that eventually led me to becoming the assistant unit head of the domestic violence unit and child abuse units where I prosecuted uh, very serious domestic assault cases as well as child abuse cases. So everything was my career trajectory at, at that time, as I thought, was being a longtime prosecutor and enjoying that work till retirement. I didn't really have my eyes on anything else at that point. But as we all know, life can get in the way of, of goals and career aspirations and what you think you're going to do. As, you know, there's a very famous line from a John Lennon song that life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. And that's what happened to me. My husband and I, Ted, we have two boys, Sam, who's now 15, and Nate, who is eight and a half. And they are both amazing kiddos. But when I was in my ninth year at the Department of Justice, I learned that my youngest, Nate, he was born with Down syndrome, but he didn't just have Down syndrome. He ended up needing open heart surgery at five weeks. So he had a really rough go at life right from the start because of his heart situation. But we were actually able to get that repaired. And I went back to work and we were moving along just fine when at his first birthday, he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And that diagnosis, that just came completely out of the woodwork. We did not, it was, we, we were not expecting it. Really, our, our world just collapsed. Can't If you have ever had a kid that's had medical complications, you know how hard it can be. So we really had to regroup and just make some decisions about what we were going to do. So I, you know, certainly we are fortunate. My husband had a great job, had great access to insurance. I had a great job great access to insurance through state benefits, but we knew that one of us was going to have to really take time away from work to get through a very traumatic and scary time. So I decided to leave work. And I, at that time, the attorney general was Matt Den. And I remember clearly going into his office and saying, Matt, I'm, I'm really sad that I'm leaving such a great place, but this is, uh, this is what I have to do. And he said, you absolutely have to do this. And we're always here for you so you can come back at any time. And so that was a great comfort to me because someone who's motivated for public service, you know, it was really hard to to step away, but there's times in life where you have no choice and you have family is always first. So at that point, we decided for me to to step away in hopes of getting Nate through what was going to be a very traumatic ordeal for him as he fought a vicious, vicious form of cancer. I just can't imagine 
the the stress and the challenge of all that. It strikes me that in in all of these areas, from caring from your son to go, doing journalism job while going to law school to now serving the state legislature, that you don't shy away from hard things and challenges. And we can always credit feisty Irish grandmothers, as, as I do for me as well. But where does that drive come from? Where does that willingness to try these very hard things come from? Well, that's a great question. I mean, some of it is you don't have a choice, right? The, you know, with Nate, I didn't have, you know, it was here I was confronted with his medical situation. And, and I had a, a, a six, he had a six-year-old older brother and his older brother's looking to me to say, what we've got to, what are we going to do here? Well, how are you going to take care of us? And in that situation, you have no choice. But what you find out is when you have no choice and you, and you tackle the issue or the problem, what you learn in that process is just so critical and interesting and helpful and really shapes what you do next. And, you know, of course you don't know that or appreciate that at the time, nor should you, you know, the, the, my whole, and people kept telling me at that moment of diagnosis, like, look, stop thinking about, it's very hard to do. Stop thinking about where you'll be next week. Stop thinking about where you'll be even tomorrow. You just really do need to focus on hour by hour or even minute by minute getting through this. And it was true. I went from, you know, being a mom of two, both kids, you know, one, one in first grade, the other in daycare and working nine to five, carrying files home and over the weekend to prepare for trial on Monday my husband busy with his work, active social lives, you know, very involved in our community, having fun to being told that basically your world is going to change and it's going to change very fast. And we don't know if you're going to have two children in six months or one. And so, you know, what we did was I, I said, okay, let's do this. And we moved, I literally moved into Nemours, which is a hospital, very fortunately, just about a mile away from my home, Children's Hospital. And we started what was to be six months of, of chemo treatments. And it was so horrible to observe your child going through not just cancer, but the treatments to cancer, because Often, if children die of cancer or people die of cancer, it's either the disease or the treatment for the disease. And that is just a very, uh, very hard thing to watch a, a baby go through. He literally was a year old, very curious about life and people and wanting to be on the move, but also having to be tied to a chemo line for sometimes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was a, it was a very grueling ordeal. I will say I'm one of the few and lucky ones that get to sit here knowing that he right now, as we speak, is having a ball at his aftercare program right now, like probably in the playground, right? So, and I didn't know that then. We didn't know. And, you know, you watch your child go in and knowing that this, the medicine is what will help him, but there's a lot to that treatment that when you start cancer treatment, the idea is to kill the bad cells, but in the process, you kill all the cells. And you bring bringing your child to the brink of having no immune system and then having to watch him get stronger again only to begin it again for another month is is just was just very as i said you can't look at things day by day it was really hour by hour at that moment and luckily as things would turn out and i think this was a wink from my nana on march 17th of of 2016 he finished his final cancer treatment and has been has been cancer free since. So 
that in a nutshell was what took me away from life as a prosecutor to at that point in 2016, just being uh, not just, but solely my sole focus was getting um, my youngest through that, through that time. That's a good St. Patrick's Day. That's worth drinking a glass of beer or two to celebrate. <laughs> um, we actually did. I actually became very known for being a little bit wacky over there at the hospital. I, I was like this, you know, because it really stinks. I mean, there's nothing worse than being trapped in a hospital on Halloween, on Thanksgiving, on Christmas, on all the holidays. I remember Thanksgiving and there were just only a few families. Mostly they try to kick all the families out and get them home if they can, you know, if they can get them their kids to a place where they can be safe to go home. But there are three families who just they were like, no, sorry, you guys, you're stuck here. And I said, what about, you know, what are, we have to do something like, and I love the Macy's Day Parade. So I, we actually had a St. Patrick's Day Parade on the floor. So, and that was how we left. <laughs> so. That is good. Well, if, if nothing else, you can always have a parade. That's right. So tell me how you went from managing those life transforming, incredibly challenging experiences to deciding you wanted to add on running for the state legislature and challenging the minority whip of the other party and incumbent uh, in the race. Tell me about that decision. So that took a while. After having the wonderful news with Nate getting better, you know, again, we, we had to regroup and rebuild a little bit. Wanted to spend some time that I had missed with my older guy, Sam, so and just be a family. So we just hung out for a while and I stayed home with the kids and started thinking about what was next for me. The idea of going back to work at the Department of Justice was appealing, but I I guess because of the experiences that I had faced at that time, I just was concerned about going back to the same thing. I, I became a very changed person in that hospital room over those months. I, you know, seeing children, other children, not just your own, going through so much is is really challenging. I remember clearly, and and this this memory really created in me, I think the decision, one of the, one of the prominent reasons why I ran is experiences like this one, where I was in a hospital room, one door away from a child who was about three or four, also going through cancer treatments, who would scream out for his mom in the middle of the night, the child had no parent with him or her. And I don't really know why, because again, you don't get that information. And there was an aide that would, could help the child. But you think about why is a parent not present and most likely it was because that parent had other children to take care of or financial responsibilities that wouldn't permit him or her to be there with the child, maybe ensure, you know, keeping and holding down a job to make sure you have insurance so the child can get the care that he or she needs. So I just, I saw in a way how fortunate I was, even I was in this very traumatic environment going through my own trauma with, with Nate, you see next door, there's just somebody who just has it so much worse. and. To me, there was a very clear reason, which was equity in healthcare. So that continued to bother me. And I didn't quite know how I was going to, you know, again, I needed to get my own feet on the ground, but it continued to replay in my mind experiences like that. So we were, if you ever want to make a career change, I always say go on a couple week vacation. So my husband and I were at our favorite place in Maine and talking about what was next. And he actually threw out the idea of running for state representative against, as you mentioned, the minority whip who had been in office. She was the longest serving Republican or longest serving House member, I think, at the time that I defeated her. So I kind of laughed at that. But at the same time, that didn't, I, it just really intrigued me. And I thought, you know what, 
I have nothing else to do. No, I have nothing else to lose. Let's why not? And so began, began that path. And tell me, you'd been in public service. You'd been on, you'd been an observer of politics through journalism. Tell me what it was like making those first few phone calls, knocking on doors and, and launching that race. You know, if there's times in your life that you could go back to, you know, I always think as hard as campaigns are, those first months, I would love to go back and relive again because of how much fun they were. We assembled the best team. It just was a phenomenal group of people who were so excited for the challenge. It was a great time to run for office. 2018 was the first the first election, if you will, after the Trump success of 16, unfortunately, you know, that so this 2018 was a real critical time for Democrats to get back on their feet also. And so there was a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm. And I just took people from various points of my life and said, called them and said, what do you want to, you know, what are you doing Saturday? It was a Saturday in November of 17. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, I want to see if you'll join my campaign team. And a lot of these people had zero political volunteer experience. They were political in nature, very engaged, smart people. But in terms of like knocking doors, canvassing, raising money, never done any of that before. But so excited about it. So talented in so many other different areas of life. You know, some were attorneys, some were childcare workers. Some one of my best volunteers was a nurse that helped Nate at his bedside. So, you know, I I called everybody I knew who I thought would have fun together and would enjoy the experience and we we turned out a great team that really made it made a decision that and I knew it was going to take a long time. So we launched a campaign about a year before the primary. And then proceeded to literally knock every door in the district. Wow. And when you were running and and now into your service, what are the issues that that motivated you and frankly motivated your campaign team and volunteers to vote for you and, and get you into office where you could make some change? Well, at that point, and that was 2018, the major issue for people was access to health care. And so that you know, that was my message. And that's what I wanted to communicate about what my priority would be. But it was interesting to find out that that was shared by the people I was, you know, whose doors I was knocking on was the, frankly, the expense of healthcare, the lack of opportunities to get adequate care, concern about their kids and and, and their kids' future. That continues to be a, a big issue that we're facing. And access to healthcare, can you talk about some of the policies that, that you maybe brought from your experience? I know you're actively working to expand kids that are covered by health insurance in your state, and then also other pri- legislative priorities you have right now. Sure. And, you know, I'm lucky in, in Delaware, we're, we're really lucky with our, with our General Assembly. We have people in office that really represent a lot of different a lot of different careers and occupations. In fact, in our house, our, our current Majority Whip, she's an RN and chair of the health committee. So I've joined a number of their initiatives that have really worked to increase the number of primary care physicians that are here. We've worked to give different medical services to low-income communities and, and communities that have traditionally been unrepresentative. So we, we've had a lot of initiatives to do that as a caucus. Personally, the one that I have been championing now for two years is, a, is an initiative to provide uh, medical coverage to children who are undocumented if they meet 
the federal poverty guidelines to get either Medicare or CHIP. So that's been an uphill battle for me, but it's one that I'm not going to stop fighting until we can get this coverage for these kids. It's just, sadly, so many children don't have access to the routine and preventative care that can really help them and the state in the long run. While we cover expensive emergency room care and while hospitals will pay for inpatient hospitalizations, there's nowhere for these children to turn to to go see a dentist or a doctor for vaccinations or just a minor ear infection. As parents, we, uh, I mean, how many times have you had to take your kids to the pediatrician for just antibiotics for an ear infection? You know, and those things, those minor events that could easily be treated and at a lower cost turn into massive infections where kids are hospitalized and services are more expensive. So I've been really trying to stand up a program here in Delaware that will give access to those children who really need the help. These kids go to school in our in all of our schools and the, you know they're suffering. Studies show that children who have access to health care will are less likely to be behind in education or more likely to be able to graduate on time and enter the workforce and be successful. And so it's it's one of those initiatives that I started last year, and as we all know, as policymakers, if you can't do it the first time, you just keep trying until you figure out what works. Thank you for doing that. Our county did that, and you know we saw dramatic changes, as you mentioned, not only in the health of kids, but in their overall well-being and the health of their families and reduced costs. Do you think the pandemic may help in that we all learned that our health is not solely an individual matter, but in many ways reliant on the collective. And people will see that if you have kids who who don't go to the doctor for an ear infection, soon there'll be a, a lot of kids who have ear infections. And and maybe it's a good idea to create programs to to ensure that all of our kids are healthier. I do. I think you that you raised such an excellent point, Ryan. And I want to know more about what your county has done because any ideas that you have or others have on this topic, I'd love to hear. But absolutely. I mean, just look just at vaccinations alone, just on that one topic of how important those are and not to have access for for kids to get those is challenging. And not just for COVID vaccines, but for, for the all the other ones. And you know, we we really, you know, and, and people are are becoming more cognizant of the of the fact that healthy kids, that it matters. It's not just about the child being healthy. And of course, we want that for the child. It's the right thing to do. But it pays off for the classroom and it pays off for the school and ultimately the community to have children who are healthy and then happy. Absolutely. Switching gears a little bit, you're also the vice chair of the Judiciary Committee and Natural Resources Committee. And so you were taking up uh, a bunch of the salient issues that, that we're all talking about, one being data privacy. Can you talk about your efforts in this session to create some standards around that? Oh, I would love to. And this is where some people may want to tune out if they could become bored by this topic, but I love to talk about it. So I have been trying again. This is, and I, I really, we're really close this year and very hopeful. We have about three weeks of session left, but we're in a really good place to pass legislation that will give Delaware consumers wonderful rights in terms of their personal information. And it's an initiative I've been trying for two years. I know a number of states, of course, California has been at the forefront of this for a number of years, and other states are also taking up their own initiatives. So I've tried and have come up with a really robust bill that that gives consumers better control of 
how their information is used and who can have it. We modeled this bill after Connecticut, largely in Colorado. Connecticut last year passed a, a strong bill, and I think Colorado was either last year or the year before. And we've been talking to experts from those states about what works and what they would do differently to create what's now House Bill 154 in the Delaware General Assembly. In that bill, what it does is it it allows consumers to go to a business that has a certain number of consumers information and ask that business or entity, you know, what information they have on the person. Individuals allowed to get a copy of what that information is, correct any inaccuracies that might be in that uh, record, and also and ultimately asked to have that information deleted so that that app that's trading and selling mental health data, um, you know, if a consumer says to them, tell me what you have on me, they have to give it and, and delete it ultimately if certain requirements are met. So, you know, as consumers, we are really decades behind where we need to be in terms of our privacy and, and information. And because we haven't been vigilant we have lost a lot of groundwork and and things that used to be very sacrosanct in terms of what belongs to you, be it your name, your mother's maiden name, your social security information, how often you go to the grocery store, what you watch on the weekends. Um, what used to be deemed very private and personal information is now companies are making millions off of it, selling it, indeed billions in some cases. And people are are losing a lot of what they should have for their own for their own personal information. While you're also trying to, as you say, do a little catch up on data privacy, you're also trying to do, I think, what many of us would think is catch up on guns uh, and trying to reduce the number of gun amount of gun violence in our um, in our communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Those efforts. Sure. So we have as a state, we're trying a number of initiatives here, including a permit to purchase legislation that would require firearm owners to get a you know permit to purchase new new um, firearms, which is a which is a big undertaking, but an important initiative. We have legislation that is also looking to ban, which just seems to me that it's just surprising to me that we don't have this already to ban individuals from possessing firearms on school grounds and also a pull location. So those are three initiatives that we are championing here in Delaware. And then a fourth that I am working on is a requirement that uh, firearms that are left unattended in a car or a motor vehicle of any sort be kept in a locked storage container, a firearm rack, or a trunk of a car. Just since 2019, 600 guns in the state of Delaware, and we're a small state. I mean, we've just exceeded 1 million people. So 600 Firearms are now on the streets, obtained by through illegal means and being used for God knows what. And we've had a, a serious issue with with firearm violence here in the state over the past several years. So I, this is one way. Again, I think we we know that there's not going to be one approach that will solve the issue of of gun violence, but a really robust look at a multiple multiple areas to do that. And I think this is one one way that that will get at that. You know, I also think it's a public awareness issue too, because you know, the fact that people leave firearms just unattended in a vehicle is just one of those frightening things. Because if it's not someone taking it to use for, you know, something else that's not 
legal. It's a kid that's finding it under mom or dad's seat in the car and getting injured or hurting somebody else. Or if it's in a locked storage case, maybe someone who's driving the car will keep it in that storage case. And if there's a road rage incident, they won't automatically think to reach for it and fire a weapon. I mean, there's just, it's again, it's a, it's an issue looking at what ways can we make people safer? And I think this is a common sense policy that we're seeing other states also try try and so I'm hoping that this is a success in Delaware but again these are challenging bills and uh, we, we do what we can I was successful in another initiative a few years ago that basically required it took out took a loophole away from individuals who get a protection from abuse order the most dangerous time in domestic violence survivors life is the moment he or she to decides to leave their abusive partner. And we had a loophole that allowed those that didn't consider those individuals to be persons prohibited right when in protection from abuse order was filed. So we closed that loophole to make sure that right the moment that a PFA was obtained, the individual who the PFA was against was not able to possess a firearm. So, and we did some other things. So again, I think it's just consistently looking at our policies in the state and trying to find out ways to keep people safe. I appreciate that. The 600 guns just from one small state is shocking. And it makes you think about when you aggregate that across the country, that is an amazing number of guns that that have no no business being on the street. I want to thank you. I mean, I think I think we're all very aware now that Delaware punches well above its weight in terms of policy <laughs> and leadership. And one of the reasons people like you who are truly committed public servants and are willing to work hard to pass policies that the rest of us can can look at and model. And it's just been a pleasure to watch you to watch you work and be a part of the New Deal Network. And we cannot wait to see uh, what you do next. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you for your kindness. And thanks for this wonderful opportunity to share some of the things we're doing here in Delaware. I really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful to the New Deal to uh, to be a part of this amazing group. And I can't wait to our, till our next get together. And it's always fun. And I learn so much and borrow so many ideas from our colleagues in this organization. And so if anyone listening has any thoughts on any of the topics that I brought up and have ideas, please let me know. I'd love to hear, hear your thoughts. And again, thank you very much. And this has been a great, great afternoon. And w- may we all keep our uh, Irish grandmothers proud of our, of, of our efforts. <laughs> Amen to that. (laughs) An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.